Maybe. There we are. Good afternoon, good morning, whatever it is. We might be here until the afternoon, but I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Jim. I'm one of the pastors here. It's so good to have you. If it's your first time or your first time in forever, stick around afterwards. We'd love to get to know you, know your name, know your kids' names. That's what we're all about here. But we are in the very last week of a sermon series entitled Grab Bag. It's a very nice excuse, convenient excuse for Will and I to preach on whatever we want to talk about. So we're going to talk about sexuality today. Are you ready for that? But um, have you ever asked the question, why did God make me this way? Some of y'all need to. (laughs) By my perspective, I'm just kidding. But whether it's a facial feature or a body type or a personality quirk, I'm not going to name any names. Or sexual identity issue. You said, God, why in the world did you make me this way? I know for me, I spent a lot of my um, high school and I spent a lot of my college years asking that question because I'm one here today. I want you to know from the get-go, I'm preaching to you today as somebody who has spent the majority of my life asking that question, somebody who has spent the majority of my life um, complaining, uh, dissatisfied with my sexuality, wondering about my sexuality. And so when I preach this message to you, I'm not preaching as um, judgmentally. I'm not preaching to you as pointing fingers. I'm simply here to help you. I'm preaching to two people today. Uh, The first person is who, like me, you've struggled, you've spent too many years uh, wondering about your sexual identity, you've spent too many years stressed out about it, you've spent too many years trying to fix yourself, and you're tired. I want to help you. The second group of people that I'm preaching to today is the church. I want church people to know how to talk about this. We have spent too long in this American Christian culture of tiptoeing around sexuality, walking on eggshells around sexuality, not knowing how to help people or give advice about sexuality, not knowing where to put it. It's the, it's the big elephant in the room. It's the big elephant, not just in this room, but culturally speaking, socially speaking, across All cultures, it's just this sexuality has taken us by force. We're almost defined by it. And the church has just kept quiet. Or if if they're not quiet about it, here's where they are. (laughs) You want to know where they are? If the church isn't quiet about it, they're very loud and very busy pointing fingers and being judgmental um, and turning people off to Christianity, turning people off to the God of the Bible. To those people, I want to equip you. I want to help you as well. I want to help you be less judgmental. I want to give you some perspective coming from somebody who has dealt with it, who's lived in it, who is still dealing with same-sex attraction. I'm here to help you. I'm not lording over you. I'm not judging. I'm not condemning anyone today. So before you throw stones and get ready to walk out in about five minutes, because you'll want to, I just preface it with that. 
also, I want to tell you this. There's no way on God's green earth that I could cover all that I want to say about sexuality. So do not consider this my exhaustive exposition on sexuality because I can't cover it all today. There's no way I have time to cover everything I want to talk about sex. So today, let it be known, if you want a sermon title for today, we're coming out about sexuality. The church is coming out about sexuality. I don't know if you can bring me down, but there's, do y'all hear the ringing? I hear ringing in my voice. No? Is it just me? Maybe it's the monitors. Okay, cool. I'm cool with it. If it's just the monitor, if I'm only one hearing it, then I'm fine with it. But we're coming out about sexuality. The church needs to know how to deal with this. If there's one safe place for people to run to, to dump all their baggage, Jamie, if there's one place where people should feel shelter from the criticisms of this harsh world, Kelly, it should be the church. If there's one place for somebody to find counsel, if there's one place where they know they won't be turned away, Harley, it, would, it should be and could be the church if we're equipped to handle it, if we know the answers, if we know how to talk to them about it. Are you ready? If you're ready, on the count of three, say, devil, go to hell. One, two, three. I didn't count. Todd, 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 Todd. Bad boy. All right, one, two, three. There's no place for him here. Not in this conversation topic. He does not get a voice. And you need to nail it down today if you're taking notes, if you're taking mental notes. The devil does not get a voice today. He does not get to whisper things in your ear about your sexuality. He did not make you. He does not define you. He has no voice. So you tell him to go to hell, and we'll move on from there. We're coming out. About, everybody else gets to come out. It's time for the church to come out about sexuality. Number one, he does not condemn. If we're going to start at the beginning, let's start at a foundational voice, a foundational verse, that is, and that is John 3.16. 16 is not up here because you should know it if you've been to Bible school a time or two. So John 3.16, we're going to say it together out loud, and then I'm going to take you to John 3.17 in a second. But John 3.16, all together, if you know it, say it, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Good job. Gold star, everyone. Now, have you read the next verse? Everybody here in the local church, have you read the next verse? Everybody here who's busy pointing out flaws in other people, have you read the next verse? Everybody here who is tempted to judge because somebody's temptation doesn't smell like yours or look like yours, have you read the next verse? Our Savior says this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. I'll read it again if you didn't catch it. Let me help you catch it. For God did not send his son into the world. To what's the word? You're not saying it with conviction. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn condemn the world. That's better, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So you mean to tell me the only one who's actually worthy to condemn someone for their sin, the only one who actually stands in a proper place to call us out for the sins we've done, chooses 
not to. You mean to tell me that the only one who is perfect and holy and righteous and just, who sin, who, who other people sin cannot be in his presence because he is perfect and holy, that guy, that person, that all-knowing omnipotent one, the one who stands on the throne to, throne to judge right and wrong, that one person who will one day judge at the second coming, you mean to tell me that's the guy who says, I'm choosing not to condemn the world. I see their sin. I'm not choosing to condemn their sin. Our Savior, being the only one justified to condemn, chose not to. So why would our job description differ from that? It's awfully quiet in here. (laughs) Our Savior is the only one who's justified to condemn based on my sexuality or yours. And he chooses not to, Dora. Instead, he came to save. Instead, he came to heal. Instead, he came to patch us up and make us new. So why would our job description differ from that? It doesn't. We have the temptation as Christians to point out people's temptations, to point out other people's sins because they may not look like us or, uh, you know, we, we meet them at the door with condemnation or judgment because they look different than us, they smell different than us. But I'm wondering, while we're so busy pointing fingers, what's, what's, what's again the, um, this, the temptation that you struggle with? Oh, it's a slanderous and gossiping tongue. Okay, well, Jesus didn't come to condemn that either. While you're so busy condemning other people's sexuality that they cannot and did not pick or choose, what's that again? Oh, you struggle with gluttony. Okay, I'm just going to back away from that. Don't dignify somebody else's sin to the point of judgment and condemnation just because you don't struggle with it. And that goes for sexuality and all other temptations after that. Billy Graham said this, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to love. My, excuse me, (laughs) I messed it up. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. Billy Graham. Holy Spirit convicts, God judges, my job, my one and only job, love. Love without prejudice, love with arms wide open, love without colorblind glasses on, just love. And here's what the church misunderstands, and this is why I think that we're so quick to judge people who struggle with things we don't struggle with, is they, they have this mentality, this supposition that God, if, if people will just get saved, that God will miraculously wipe away all their same-sex attraction or he'll just wipe them clean of all their struggles and he'll make them straight. Don't do that. Don't say that to people. That is so damaging. It'll turn people 
away quicker. That's not what God, God has not called gay people to be straight. He's called sinners to be saints. He hasn't called homosexual people to be heterosexual. The gospel is not heterosexual, it's holy. The gospel is not heterosexual, it's holy. So don't make this a bigger deal than it is. You do know that there are gay Christians, correct? You do know that there are same-sex attracted Christians, correct? John 3.16 said, For God so loved the world that whoever makes themselves straight and then comes to Christ, whoever uh, deals with their gluttony and then comes to Christ, whoever eliminates their gossiping and slanderous tongue and then believes, no, 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 it's an open-ended, it's an open-ended offer. It's, it's a free gift. There's no prerequisites other than faith, other than trust. So be careful how you talk to those who struggle with this. Be very careful, church. This point is for you. The point number one is he does not condemn. Therefore, the church should not condemn. We're called to love. We're called to offer a safe place. We're called to offer a shelter from a crazy world. By the way, somebody pursuing heterosexuality more than holiness is just as far from God as somebody pursuing homosexuality. You see, heterosexual marriage is not the goal. Knowing Jesus is the goal. You guys get that? Heterosexual marriage is not the goal. You can't promise people, oh, but if you just give your life to Christ, man, he'll make you white as new. You won't struggle with that. You can be married one day, have a family. Don't do that. That is not the gospel. The gospel has called people to be holy. The gospel is holiness and righteousness on the behalf of someone else, Jesus. And we're called into that holiness. We're granted that access. And after that, guess what? The process of sanctification is God's job. That's not up to us. Where people fall on that timeline of sanctification is none of our business. And it's going to be different with every Christian you encounter. But let's not be so quick to condemn. In fact, let's just not condemn at all. Amen? Number two, he is jealous. Number one, he does not condemn. I'm talking about God this morning because I feel like if we're going to talk about sexuality, the best thing we can do is talk about the God who made us and certain characteristics of God that define our sexuality. If we're going to put sexuality in its proper place, so many Christians, so many churches don't know what to do with it. They don't know where to put it in the priority list. Let's talk about God. Let's find out what he's like and choose to adopt an opinion after his heart. Number two, he is jealous. He is a jealous God. Sex is good. God made sex. And any manipulation thereof, whether homosexual or heterosexual, is idolatry. Let me show you that from the Bible in Romans 1. Romans chapter 1, it starts really in verse 21. I'm going to read through verse 28. It's kind of a lengthy passage, but I want you to 
submit your mind to the word of God. And we'll talk about it at the end. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, debased, fleshly in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Yeah. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Don't manipulate God's word. It means exactly what you think it means. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you see the idolatry in that verse right before this one we're about to go to? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That's idol worship. You see, we think we get a free pass. None of us are running around carving out golden images and, and things out of wood other than Billy Colucci. He, he, he makes trophies and things for a living, but none of us are running around carving and making these creatures and setting them up on pedestals and bowing down, but we are so guilty of idolatry when we worship ourselves, our sexual selves, in the place of God. Sexual sin is idolatry. It's idol worship. You're worshiping yourself. So we're going to keep going in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I didn't say it, God said it. Now that doesn't mean we take this passage and we run and we take God's word and we smack people in the face with it and tell them, hey, you're going straight to hell if you're gay. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is to say, God has his sovereign hands over all of us. That does not mean we don't have a free will. And four times in this passage, the phrase is used, God gave them up, meaning that he has control over all things, including sexuality. And when God removes his sovereign hands from a culture, if they continually and vigorously deny him and replace him with idols, including their sexuality, he will remove his hands. And he will let sin run its course, which we know is death. So it doesn't matter. The point is not that it's homosexuality. It could be heterosexuality sin. It could be fornication, adultery, whatever. All sexual sin is idolatry. All of it. And God is in control. At the end of the day, God is in control. Sexuality issues are a result of the neglect of God as creator. It's an ignorance of the holy image we were created in, and at its deepest, truest root, it's idol worship. That's what happens when we worship ourselves instead of the God who made us. We've made an unholy trade by replacing the creator with his creation. You may say, well, it's my body. I can do what I want. It's not like I'm hurting anybody else. 
I'm not worshiping anyone. First of all, that's false because the Bible says sexual sin injures not only yourself, but also the person you commit that sin with. But secondly, sexual sin is a desecration of the temple that God chooses to dwell among with his people. It's a desecration of God's temple. Remember what he did to the money changers? Remember when he made that whip, went into the temple where people were making profit and buying and selling and they were making a mockery of what God called that sacrificial Old Testament system. He called that holy. That was his way of setting up a meeting between his, his people and himself. And when Jesus saw that they turned it into idol worship, essentially, worshiping themselves, he tore the place up. He created chaos. He turned the place upside down. So when we shamelessly enter into any type of sin, homosexual or not, and we elevate ourselves to a place where only God should be, that is idolatry, and we're desecrating His holy temple. Remember, when you're given into, when you're indulging in a life of sin or, or you take that mindset that it doesn't matter, it's my body, I can do what I want, I'll do whatever feels good. Remember this, the Bible tells you in Romans 7 and 8 that you're, that's actually not freedom, that's slavery. You're a slave to sin. When you act out everything that your body tells you to do, that means your body is the master. That means your body and your sexual passions are you are enslaved too. So you're not free. You're actually a slave to your sexual sins. So don't, don't make it the other way around. God is jealous. All sexual sin is idolatry. He doesn't just want your sexuality. He wants all of you. He wants all of you. Every part of you he created, which goes into the next point. He makes no mistakes. He makes no mistakes. Your sexuality is not your identity. We just read Romans 1, 26 through 28, where it talks about where this world has come to without God, without his sovereign hand in control. Although he's still in control, he's chosen to remove his hand. You know, the answer to Romans 1, 26 through 28 is found in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It's a beautiful, crazy thing. I don't think the chapters and verse divisions are inspired, but God sure does use them from time to time. So if you read Romans 1, 26 through 28, and you're like, ooh, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't like that. Then let's turn to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and let's talk about our third point, our third characteristic of God, and that is he makes no mistake. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Your sexuality is not your identity. Your identity is found in the moment of creation where God made you, including your sexuality. He made all of you. He made you in His image, and you are perfectly the way God made you. Perfectly how God made you. So I have a huge problem when we choose to let culture define ourselves when we let culture define our sexuality. We do ourselves an injustice. We're doing the youth in this nation a disservice when we let culture and we let the terms they create define them. That is not where they should get their identity. They should not get their identity from this world. They should not get their identity from textbooks. They get it straight from the word of God. They get it straight from I made you after my likeness and you are perfect just the way you are. Don't let culture define the terms. Don't let culture define the words you use about yourself. Take them and give them to God. Offer them to the creator and let him whisper what he wants to tell you about yourself. Let him tell you. Let him tell you how to define yourself. Jackie Hill Perry, a wonderful Christian author, speaker, wrote a book called Gay Girl, Good God, and she says this, It is not wise or truthful to the power of the gospel to identify oneself by the sins of one's past or by the temptations of one's present, but rather to only be defined by the Christ who's overcome. We are ultimately not what our temptations say of us. We are what Christ has done for us. Therefore, our ultimate identity is very simple. We are Christians. That's who you are. You're a Christian. If you found salvation in Jesus Christ this morning, you're not a gay Christian or a lesbian Christian or a same-sex attracted Christian. You're not a heterosexual Christian. You're a Christian. You're not an ex-alcoholic, five years sober. You're a Christian. Don't let culture and your past or your sins or your temptations define you. You see, what, what happens in this society, in this culture, which is so damaging, they look at a boy and they say, oh, he's a little effeminate. He must be gay. He's going to grow up to be gay. They look at somebody who might be a little more creative or artistic or theatrical and they label him as gay. They say, well, that's, you know, who told you that? Where did you get that idea? Who defined masculinity to you? Who told you that you had to have a beard like Dallas to be manly? Who told you that you have to drive a big truck and work on construction sites? Who told you that if you don't know how to build things with your hands in the garage with power tools, then you're not manly? Who told you that? That is of the devil. You have got to not let culture define the terms. There are boys growing up right underneath of our noses who could be more given to artistic things, creative things, theatrical things that are a little more flamboyant. That does not make them any less of a man. And just because you're a little girl and you could be more aggressive or dominant or independent 
That does not, do not let culture tell you that you're lesbian. Do not let culture define the terms. You could just be a very godly, powerful, courageous woman. I am so tired. I'm tired. I'm tired and I'm angry of when we let culture define the terms. Where did you get that? Who told you what masculinity and femininity was? Where did you get your definition? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that masculinity is anything but living out your God-fulfilled purpose in Jesus Christ. Nothing, nowhere in the Bible does it say that femininity is anything else but living out your God-given purpose through Jesus Christ. You got to stop labeling people. We have to stop putting little boys and girls underneath these labels that they just assume that they have to grow up into. Well, you know, I, I like being in plays or I like drawing or artistic stuff, so I guess I'll have to be, grow up and be gay because that's what culture t- says. I guess I have to like boys. Same for little girls. Who, who is doing this? Who is telling them to define terms that way? We're all guilty of making judgments in our minds about this. And it's damaging. We're crippling this generation that's already happened. We're crippling the generations to come by telling them, well, you got to fit the mold if, you know, if you don't if you don't know run know how to run a table saw and if you don't know how to drive stick shift then over the rainbow you go <laughs> <laughs> who where did that come from who are we letting define the terms guys this is important when adam and eve were in the garden and they were tempted to eat of the fruit eating of the apple was sin, but do you know that sin, there was also another sin that preceded them? It's when the serpent came to them. You know, they used to walk with God every day. They were, they were created beautifully, sexually, and everything else. They were created beautifully, just as God would have them. And they walked in the garden with God at the cool of the day. And they were naked. They were made beautifully, just as God created that, them to be. And when they ate of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what's the very first thing? What's the very first thing? By the way, that that was the sin of idolatry as well. You know that. Because the serpent said, oh, you you could be like gods. You could be like God. And so the, the devil's not creative. It's always the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's it. Those are his only three tools. He might repackage them, but that's the only three temptations in this whole wide world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And he got them with all three in the garden. And they committed the sin of idolatry. And they ate, and what was the first reaction? Their first reaction was to cover themselves up because they were ashamed of nakedness. Now I want everybody to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. It's not up here. I don't want you looking on the screen. I want you to get your Bibles out, 
Turn to Genesis chapter 3. You can do it. It's the very first book. I didn't make it hard for you. Get your Bibles or your phones out and look with your own eyes at your Bible. Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve covered themselves up because of they were ashamed of their nakedness, they were choosing to define themselves by their sin by their shame and by their guilt. And God asked an all-important question in Genesis chapter 3, verse 11. He came down just like any other day and was preparing to walk with them in the cool of the evening. And they hid themselves from God. And they eventually he found them and he says in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that? Who are you letting define the terms? I made you perfect. I made you just the way I wanted you to be. There was nothing to be ashamed about in the garden with Adam and Eve. Absolutely nothing. It's only when sin got into the picture that they started to define themselves by the terminology of sin. And God says, no, no, no. No, no, no. Who told you you were naked? Who told you that? Who told you you were gay? Who told you that you were lesbian? Who told you that? Give yourself a chance. We don't even give ourselves a chance because we just go ahead and slap a label on it. We're manufacturing sin here, people, when we choose as Christians or otherwise to label boys and girls, male and females as I mean, just take Mr. Rogers. We're talking about Mr. Everybody's talking about Mr. Rogers because Tom Hanks is making the new Mr. Rogers movie. But Mr. Rogers, can you imagine if the show Mr. Rogers was being made today in 2019? People would automatically assume that it was a gay man playing the role. They would just typecast it as a gay man. But 20 years ago or whenever it was made, I don't know. There were, nobody even thought that. But here he is loving on kids and teaching, singing songs, dancing around, talking about his sweaters and exchanging, going to the closet for a different jacket or sweater. I mean, come on. There, we've got to stop labeling people. You feel me? Can I move on? You guys got it? It's damaging. You're not even giving the, this generation a chance when we just say, oh, you're effeminate, you're gay, or oh, you're dominant and aggressive, you're lesbian. God is bigger than that. Can I give you a hint? Can I tell you a secret? about sexuality in relation to God, in relation to the gospel that has called us into holiness? Can I give you a secret here? It doesn't really matter. It's not that big of a deal. It's not. It's not that big of a deal. God's got it. He's called you and I into something so much bigger and more beautiful than just being gay or straight, than just walking down the aisle and having a perfect, picture-perfect heterosexual marriage. No, 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 no. Remember, the gospel is not heterosexual. It's holy. He's called us into holiness. And so no matter where you are on that spectrum of sanctification, if you're choosing to let your sexuality define yourself, you need to tell yourself this morning, it's not that big of a deal. It's not. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. 
He made no mistake. Who told you you were naked? Anybody wonder what I was folding at the beginning? When I'm making a, a paper airplane, I know exactly what I'm doing. I know that I'm folding each crease and making each bend with the intent to let this thing fly. So it is with you and I. God folds us, increases us, and bends us, and the world looks at us and says, why, why are you bent that way? Why are you creased that way? Why are you not straight? Why do you have this or that about you? Why are you? And, and all the while, God is saying, no, I made them on purpose like that. They're created to fly. I'm going to let them soar, and I'm making each bowl, each, each bend, each fold, each crease on purpose. And while your paper airplane may not look like this one, you're going to fly differently. I've created you just the way you are on purpose. Now, I'm not going to actually do that because I don't even know if I could make it right because it's been like 15 years since I made a paper airplane. So we're not going to trust it out. We're not going to test it out. But just know all of you were making presuppositions at the beginning of the sermon as to why I was folding this paper like that. Why is he doing that? Why isn't he explaining it? How come it looks that way? What is he going to intend to do with it? We do the same with other people and their sexuality. God created them just the way they are on purpose so that they could soar, so that they could fulfill their God-given potential. Don't judge people's paper, air, paper airplanes. Last but not least, he is enough. He does not condemn. He is a jealous God. He makes no mistakes. Number four, he is enough. The gospel is the answer. This point is for those who struggle with same-sex attraction while being a Christian. Did you know that salvation is for you too? Salvation is a crazy thing because, yeah, it gets us saved, but so many of us leave it there. We forget to take it with us. Oh, yes, God saved me. His shed blood on the cross. Amen. Hallelujah. I'm saved. I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. I'm justified. And then we leave it at the front door of our sanctification process. But you've got to grab that thing bring it with you. Salvation is for saved people. In other words, Jesus, just like we sang about, Jesus is enough. And here's what I came to tell somebody today. There is nothing that you desire that cannot be found in Jesus. And that includes your sexuality as well. There's nothing that you could possibly desire that Jesus does not only match but supersede. It's not about gay people becoming straight. It's about sinners becoming saints. It's about Christians knowing Jesus. It's about people becoming holy. And the gospel is what does that. The answer to your sexuality is wanting God more. The answer to your same-sex attraction is loving Jesus more. Because guess what? What he did for you on the cross doesn't end at the point of salvation. It begins. And his love is too good to leave you where you are. His love is too good to leave you where you are. I can only tell you my story because I am, I, I was blessed beyond measure to be able to get married 
and to have a family. It doesn't work like that for everybody, and don't tell people that it will. However, just because it worked out for me that way, I know God's love was too good to leave me where I was. Even if you don't get married and you don't have the picture-perfect family and you live a life of singleness and abstinence until your ultimate wedding day to Jesus Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb, God's love is too good to leave you where it found you. He will change you. And that doesn't mean he'll take away your same-sex attraction or he'll turn you straight automatically. That doesn't mean that, but... He will refine you. He will love you. He will change you. And what he changes you in, in the areas that he changes you, that's what's more important to him here and now. So don't look at a gay Christian or a same-sex attracted Christian and say, wow, they're going, I don't, I mean, they may not be going to hell, but they're not living their best life. You don't know. You're not the judge of that. God may be working on other aspects of their personality or their Christian walk long before he gets to gayness. Again, it's not that big of a deal. He'll get to it when he gets to it. Sanctification is whose process, ours or God's? It's God's process. It is his process, and he'll deal with the priority list as he sees it. And just because you put their gayness number one, it could be 25 on his list. And they may not be changed until they ultimately see God face to face and they sit down robed in righteousness, robed in white linen, escorted into the marriage supper of the Lamb to be wed. And that's the cool thing. If, if you're here and you're struggling with that singleness, you're grinding it out, you're fighting the good fight. And trust me, when I know it's a fight, but it's a good fight. That's a message for another day. Anybody who's single here, who has not found sexual fulfillment, whether homosexual, heterosexual. By the way, it's not fulfilling homosexually, by the way. I'll just say that. Coming from somebody who's lived it out, there's nothing satisfying about it. It leaves you with shame, regret, and feeling dirty. Okay, I'm telling you because I've done it. It's not God's plan. He made the female body and the male body to fit. He made it to fit. Squares don't go in round holes. Square peg doesn't fit in a round hole. But that's the sermon for another day. It's, what, what was my point? Singleness. Singleness. <laughs> yeah, singleness. Okay, let's go to Revelation. I told you we'd be in Genesis and Revelation today. I told you that. But singleness, what, if, if you're living the life of singleness and you're living the life of waiting waiting for God, waiting for God to bring the right one. Did you, have you ever thought or considered that he might be the one? He might be the one. He might, Jesus Christ might be the one. It says this, and I encourage every single person, whether you're struggling with loneliness, whether you're struggling with same-sex attraction or whatever, you will eventually have a wedding. You will eventually have a marriage unlike any other. And that should be enough That should be enough. That's the whole point is Jesus is enough. You don't need earthly fulfillment. You don't need sexual fulfillment here on this earth because Jesus is the ultimate satisfaction for everything in your life. 
And there will be an intimate, holy union unlike anything we could experience here on earth. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's when the whole bride of Christ comes together robed in righteousness and we're seated at a feast, at a wedding feast where Jesus is the groom and he's crowned as king and we are presented to him as the faultless, beautiful, dressed in splendor bride of Christ. And if that's the only marriage and wedding you can look forward to in your life, that's enough. That is beautiful. That is holy. That is the perfect picture of what any earthly wedding ceremony would be. He is enough. We'll get to the passage in a second, but I want to encourage you with this. God may not remove the same-sex attraction from your life. He hasn't for me. But did you know that's, that's only an immovable identity when your heart is unwilling to bow? If you're willing to submit and surrender and acknowledge that Jesus is enough, I don't know where it will move, but it, it can move in the name of Jesus on that spectrum. Here's a mind frame that could help. Don't fight against your sexuality. Fight for it. Are you fighting for your sexuality? Some of us are trying so hard not to be gay that we don't, we, we're misunderstanding. You're supposed to fight for your sexuality. Choose to define yourself by the proper definition, proper terms. You are beautifully and perfectly made. Um, we already covered, recognize out the temptations. The devil is not creative. It only falls into three categories. And realize this, when God says, Romans 1, 21 through 28, clearly says no to the sin of homosexuality. But realize that when God says no, he's always pointing to something better. The don'ts in the Bible always point to do's. And those do's are better, more satisfying, greater than we could ever think or imagine. So I want you to understand that Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that a proper view of the beauty and holiness of Jesus calls us to lay aside unfulfilling and fleeting temptations that weigh us down. If you're struggling today, look at Jesus. He is enough. Look at the creator, the author, and perfecter of your faith. He laid aside everything to come rescue and save you. So don't think he can't handle your sexuality. It's not that... It's not that Genesis 1, God created male and female and everything was beautiful and wonderful and then he zoomed all the way forward to the year 1986 and he was creating me in my, in my mom's womb and his hand slipped. He's like, oh crap, I messed up. He's destined to be gay. I just, I didn't get that one part in his brain right and oh my goodness, he's, golly, I feel so bad for the kid. He's gonna grow up gay because I messed up with my fingers. God, Jesus, is enough. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He created you in his beauty and holiness. And if you're choosing to define yourself any other way, you're letting sin, you're letting the devil whisper. And we already nailed it down this morning at the beginning that he does not have a voice today. He doesn't get a voice, Harley. He doesn't get a voice. He doesn't get a say-so in this matter. When he is enough, our temporary struggle, whether, whatever that is, singleness, SSA, guilt about your past, shame about your past. When he is enough, 
Our temporary struggles are swallowed up with the anticipation of an ultimate holy wedding day. Even in tears and pain and difficulty, we keep fighting because we know being in his will is infinitely better than being in our own. And just like Jesus, we endure because we know joy will always be on the other side of obedience. Joy will always be on the other side of obedience. I want us to stand and read Revelation 19 together as a closing, as a capstone to this sermon. as a description of what will be described as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And anybody here today who struggles with same-sex attraction, struggles with singleness, loneliness, desires and passions of the flesh that well up in us and seemingly control us, you can fight today knowing that this joy and the anticipation of this moment is more lasting than any fleeting, self-satisfying, self-gratifying, instantaneous moment that's gone, that leaves you feeling dirty, that leaves you feeling empty. Look at this. This is what our eyes should be on. This is who we should be looking at. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice, and the worship team can go ahead and come up. The voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Hallelujah. We're not made ready by our deeds, but by Jesus. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Whose robes are those, I wonder? Jesus. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you're found in Jesus today, you're invited to that wedding. It's your wedding. That's your wedding. And you will be joined by a groom who purchased you with his own blood and stands before you as king. He'll be crowned as king and will enter a holy union that's intimate like nothing we could experience here on earth. These are the true words of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we give our sexuality to you. You made us beautifully. You made us all different and unique. And you get to define us as the creator. You get to define us as the very God who breathed life into us. And that life, your breath looks different as it's lived out by each creature, whether some are timid, some are aggressive, some are creative, some are skilled with their hands. We're all uniquely and beautifully created by you, and that doesn't get a label. That doesn't get it. That's too big for a label. God, would you be with us? I pray that you would give us eyes to see this wedding day. Give us eyes to see this marriage that will one day come to pass. Give us eyes to see you, Jesus. That's all we need. You're enough. You're enough to take our sexuality. You're enough to handle it. You're the, you're the true desire and joy. That is the only fulfillment of our desires, God. 
come and be in this room. And I pray with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're one today who struggles or maybe you're a Christian who's guilty of judgment, that you would in this moment during this last song cast down some idols in your heart. Maybe you've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and you've elevated the creature instead of the creator. Get into that holy temple, which is your body, and create chaos this morning. You need to turn some tables upside down. You need to dedicate this as the holy temple where God chooses to dwell among his people. And that is the only definition of our sexuality. God, we love you. Thank you for this day. It's in your name. Amen.